Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I'm your host, Max Bowen. Horror fans, keep it right here because this one is not to be missed. Author Nick Roberts and I talk about his soon-to-be-released book, The Exorcist House, available through Crystal Lake Publishing. In this episode, we look at the different types of horror and which ones Nick prefers to write in. He talks about the research needed and how he makes his book stand out among similar titles. Nick's already got one book out, Anathema, and we look at how the first novel informed the writing of the second. Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to the show. So good to have you here with my next guest. He is the author of the soon-to-be-released book, The Exorcist House, being published by by our good friends at Crystal Lake Publishing. Author uh, Nick Roberts joins me. Nick, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you here. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, all right. So let's dive right into the story behind this book. So this is set in the summer of 1994. Psychologist Daniel Hill buys a rustic farmhouse nestled in the rolling hills of West Virginia. He leads a quiet life, gets in touch with his inner self, and everything works out fine. I'm just kidding. That's not how it goes. Turns out that there's a hidden room in the basement with a well boarded shut and adorned with crucifixes because the previous owner loved him some exorcisms. Because everyone needs a hobby, right? I mean, so uh, Nick, the first question for you, man, is, is why exorcisms? Why did this have to become the subject of your new book? Well, when I watched The Exorcist at the horribly inappropriate age of probably 10, I was at a, a friend's sleepover, and I'm going to give my age here, but he pulled out a, his parents' VHS copy of The Exorcist and popped it in. And I was sort of just staring out the window, not really paying attention. I was like, this, this is boring. There's nothing going on in this movie. Where's, where's the guy in the hockey mask? Where's something cool? And then all of a sudden, I hear this like guttural growl. And I look over at the screen and I see this little girl with her mouth open and the, her, her eyes roll back to the whites. And this man's voice sort of comes out of her throat. And I, I had a, a warm, hollow feeling in my gut. And I sat there. I, I didn't even have the guts to look away from the screen. I was that frozen. And then, of course, when it cut back to her mom's horrified reaction in the scene, I sort of snapped out of it and looked around and I was like, OK, so this is why they say this is such a terrifying movie. And I, I, I kind of kept my eyes out that window throughout the rest of the film it was by far the most traumatic experience that a film ever made on me. So from that point on, that sort of set the standard for what I considered to be scary. And what was so brilliant about it was that it made people who didn't even necessarily uh, buy into the premise of Catholicism, of religion, of good versus evil, suspend their disbelief because it was so grounded in the characters and reality. I mean, you watch it, it's not filmed like a genre movie. It's, it, it's shot like you're like a drama. And that's probably why I got the, all the Academy Award nominations. But anyway, so yeah, that really stuck with me. Um, the, the, the exorcist. And one, of course, when I got older, I read the book and thought, you know, this book can't compare to this movie. So I sat there in my teens alone at my dad's house one night, started reading, 
sure enough, got to that exact same part. And because I had seen that movie, I had that voice in my head already and terrified me all over again. And I would say that that book is, is my favorite book. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So from the young age of 10, you're, you were just like hooked on the horror genre. How do you think that this kind of like influenced you just like as a writer, because you got into it, you know, so young. Well, I would say I was hooked well before the age of 10. Oh, 10 really? was when I got traumatized by exorcisms. <laughs> I, I blame being born in October because I naturally looked forward to that time of the year. Uh, and then, you know, that it being close to Halloween. So I sort of associated Halloween and my birthday and as one and the same. And I used to love how uh, movies would come on in the month of October and I could watch movies that I wouldn't necessarily be allowed to see because they played them on TV during the month of October. And of course, you know, when I went to elementary schools at book fairs, I was caught by covers of R.L. Stein's Goosebumps and Fear Street and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. All those were sort of my gateway into ultimately Stephen King. And uh, yeah, from, from King on is, is where it grew. So yeah, um, it started well before the age of 10. What, what was the original question before I digressed into all that? <laughs> no, no, it's cool, man. Because like, it's so cool to kind of read, like to, uh, to kind of hear like the path you were on, all the different things you you had checked out. Of course, like, you know, Goosebumps is the more like kid-friendly horror. Then you go into Scary Shorts, Tell in the Dark. And then you go into Stephen King, who is, of course, is like the grandfather of like horror in general, I feel. But the question was just about like how getting to horror at such like a young age, how do you think that kind of influenced you as a writer? Well, I equated my love for horror to to roller coasters. Uh, I, I love feeling in that present moment, getting out of my head because my head is a circus of thoughts. And anything that breaks up that train of thought is good in my book. So, you know, riding a roller coaster, you're not thinking about your problems or what you're doing tomorrow or what you didn't do yesterday. You're thinking about, oh, my gosh, I'm about to drop, you know, 100 feet. Same thing with with scary stuff for me. I like being scared. You know, just because I like, just because I write horror doesn't mean I don't get scared. I am the biggest scaredy cat there is. And that's why I love reading scary stuff, watching scary movies, going to haunted houses still to this day. Um, I'll, I'll drag my wife out to different haunts around the country. And... It just, it, it, it makes me feel so in the present moment. It's more of a thrill, kind of like a carnival show, you know, it's, uh, I don't, I'm not into making people feel uncomfortable as much as I am into entertaining and those, those genuine thrills that, that can happen. Exorcisms, uh, certainly a lot of books written about them. So it's not a, like a brand new topic, but how do you approach it in a way that can kind of make your book stand out from the others? Sure. Yeah, that was my biggest holdup. That's why my first novel was not about an exorcism. You know, I'd seen so I mean, I'm sure you've seen all the different exorcism movies that have, that have been made. They've adapted the original movie a couple of times or made sequels of it. 
And I would say that that's what kept me away from it. But my initial th- my initial goal with my second novel didn't necessarily have to do with an exorcist and its genesis. I had I grew up you know in in southeastern West Virginia, and my uncle or my cousin, he's a little bit older than me, so I always referred to him as my uncle, but he's my cousin, and he uh, he had a farm, and he had this nice little farmhouse on these this rolling land. If I'm remembering it correctly, it could have been, you know, one acre big in my child imagination, but he had animals. He had, there, there's a forest surrounding the place. And I just thought even then that that would be a cool setting for a spooky story, a farmhouse. Well, then I thought this phrase, it sort of just popped in my head out of nowhere, the phrase backwoods exorcist. And I think where it came from, I'm a, I'm a high school English teacher, and I was teaching uh, Sherlock Holmes to my, my 10th graders, and we were reading The Hound of the Baskervilles, and one of the characters was a sort of a backwoods country doctor. He would you know travel from farmhouse to farmhouse, treating various ailments as best he could with his limited amount of supplies. And that phrase, well, what if there was an exorcist? that had to function that way. What if there was a backwoods exorcist? And I was just hooked on those two words. They would not leave my head, but I needed some other sort of thread to sort of connect it into a, into a narrative. I had a basic premise, backwoods exorcist, creepy farmhouse, but I needed that extra thread. And that's where the, uh, the family of the main characters and the problems, the the demons, you might say, that they bring into the the narrative. How would you say their demons compare to the actual demons that they're going to encounter in the book? Well, if I were in their situation, I would much rather be dealing with things like infidelity and, and anger issues than creatures crawling out of the well in the middle of the night. Yeah, good point. But... Um, yeah, without giving too much away, I will say that they reflect one another. At least I, I intended them to reflect one another. Okay. Now, in in some of these exorcism uh, books and movies, and I won't say uh, which ones, they're out there, but they are very much, you know, monster-focused. It's all about the scares and the jump scares and the everything else's. Would you say your book is, like, strictly like a horror book, or is it a little more than that? Well, of course, I strive to make it a little more than that. And again, that's because of my experience reading The Exorcist, not necessarily watching the movie. But when I went back and read it as a teen, that it was almost a spiritual experience. And I say that because the, uh, the average teen, and I know this because I'm a teacher of high schoolers, doesn't go around questioning reality and the purpose of why we are all here and, and spiritual and existential issues. When I read The Exorcist, it made me think about that kind of stuff. Now, it's not like I bought into Catholicism or anything like that, but what happened was I was pondering these deeper ideas, not to mention that it scared me to death. So it entertained me and it made me think. So those are my two primary goals as, as an author. You know, filmmakers like Jordan Peele, you know, they, he, he knocks it out of the park and by the way, I can't wait for his new movie to come out. Oh yeah. I, I, I have seen so much like in-depth analysis of the trailer for Nope 
It's like, oh, yeah. it's like I'm pretty sure like the JFK assassination didn't get this much attention. People are, are just like <laughs> picking apart the tiniest like little things. Um, so just talking about that, talk about like the kind of stuff you grew up reading. What would you say is your like genre of choice when like like within horror? Uh, lately, I've gotten really into folk horror. Hmm. And uh, I would say supernatural, but supernatural in 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 an ambiguous way. I'm more of I'm more of the audience that will get creeped out by something that makes my mind fill in the blank. You know, I have nothing against you know the the gross out, the splatter, the gore. There there are you know quite a few shocking scenes in my work. And you know, I had people who read my first novel say that they had to stop at one point. <laughs> and but but um, I, I, what resonates with me is those disturbing things that when you shut the book and you sit there and think about it, and then you might even still be thinking about it a day later. So I like I like books like that. And I just read one, um, The Collector by john Foles, fowls Foles. have you read that uh i haven't or heard it yet that? heard of it though it's definitely on uh on uh, my list okay so well i don't want to i don't want to spoil it for you but between that and and books like the wasp factory um pet cemetery you know these those are the ones that really stuck with me and it was you know especially with pet cemetery that i think that was the first time i I realized that i'm going to die one day it really made me question mortality you know and and that was that was shocking but it's also a bit cathartic so yes i love i I love entertaining or i love to read uh, of course i'll read anything stephen king puts out or clive barker but um, yeah, I like to go for what creeps me out rather than what would shock me. I get you. Yeah, I I'm kind of the same way because I'm I'm a big fan of the works uh, by Brian Keene and Bentley Little, and I think both achieve that same thing. They create that very creepy atmosphere as opposed to like the jump scares on like page like you know two twenty and so forth. So I definitely appreciate like the atmosphere, car, the kind of thing where you, where you stop reading and think, okay, it wasn't real. It wasn't real, but what if it was? Fuck, I can't sleep now. Yeah. Have you ever read a book and 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 gotten a jump scare out of it? Um, a legit like gasp. I would say I've had those scenes happen, yes, because I can picture it in my head. I don't know if it was necessarily a jump scare, but it was it was either more like a very creeped out feeling. Or just like, again, I picture my head like, oh, that's not good. I don't want to see that anymore. I can't stop seeing that now. Yeah. I've had that happen one time. And it, I, I like true crime books as long as they're done, you know, tastefully and non-exploitative. But mm. I was reading a book by the guy, one of the guys who was investigating the uh, BTK killer and he was talking, he was a detective. He was talking about walking around one of the family's houses after, after hours, no one was there except him. He was wandering from room to room with his flashlight, just looking for things. And he realizes that no one ever went down into the basement 
when they did the initial search of this house, of the crime scene. So he's walking down in the basement and he's got his flashlight and he, he's looking around, gets in, down to the basement level, searching around and he bumps into something. He turns around and a little girl is hanging from a pipe. Oh, and when I, when I read that line, my heart skipped a beat. And I think that was the closest I've ever had to a genuine jump scare from a book. And I immediately told uh, one of my friends who uh, is one of my early readers for, for everything I write. I was like, I, I want to write a, uh, a genuine jump scare in my book. I have to do that. I have to replicate this feeling for somebody else. And he said, bro, you did that in your first one. When I read this one scene in that book, I, I, I had to shut the book. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I feel like a jump scare would be hard for a book because there's no visual component to it. You know, like you're really relying on the reader's imagination kind of filling in the blanks for you because with movies, you you have the visual, but you also have the sound. You have that that's the, the sudden burst of sound that they that they always do in the theaters. Um, so yeah, so the, to actually achieve a jump scare in a book, well done. It's a, a rare feat. Well done. Yeah, the uh, the sound. The first thing I did as a kid, whenever a scary, whenever I was anticipating a scary thing happening, cover my ears. And it wasn't necessarily to close my eyes; it was to cover my ears. You know, it's sound, sound, and soundtrack. Sound design is so important in in movies. Oh yeah, I was going to say try watching The Shining on mute and see if it's still scary, but I know it would still be legit terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you're right. I mean, there are like some movies. If you, if you were if you were to watch them muted. You'd be like, oh, this is kind of spooky, I guess, but not so much. Yeah. Um, but back, but uh, back to your book. Um, of course, exorcisms, a topic which has been explored a lot before. What kind of research did you have to do to become really familiar with them? I looked up this this book called the um, Basic Rites of Exorcism, and it's a book that's still used in in certain uh, colleges in in Rome and. In the Vatican, they have they they still teach exorcism courses to this day, and I was fascinated by that. Now, as far as like consulting with an actual priest or anyone that has performed an exorcism, no, I did not do that. But um, there are religious and biblical components that I had to meet with a pastor and run run by. And uh, he definitely helped answer a few questions with that. But um, yeah, I did want it to be, I did want the exorcism ritual itself to be the exact same thing that one would do in real life. Hmm. What would you say are some of the misconceptions that, you know, people have about exorcisms in general? Misconceptions. Well, I would say that exorcisms in real life probably get their power from the power of belief. I'm not one who believes a man can walk into another room and cure someone of demons. That's just not my belief system. But I do believe that if that person writhing around on that bed believes that they're possessed and they believe that this person can cure them of this possession, that that could happen. So I'm into the psychosomatic aspect of it more so than the, you know, the the actual demonic possession side of it. Also, I did want to avoid all the cliches that we've seen a thousand times. Yeah, I get you. I get you. Um, 
Speaking of the psychological aspect of this, of course, Daniel Hill, your main character, he is a psychologist. How does he approach this whole thing, given that he's like a man of science, so he probably really relies on like evidence and data and numbers? So that, that's interesting that you have that perspective. It, it was not by, uh, it wasn't a coincidence that I just happened to pick a psychologist as my main character. Well, he's, a, I would say he's a co-main character, the married couple. They are the protagonists. But Daniel Hill, as a psychologist, is fascinated with the mind, the inner workings. And his wife is a high school science teacher. So I sort of had her be that voice of skepticism and reason while Daniel gets consumed on uncovering these mysteries of what's going on in this house and kind of descending into this rabbit hole of madness and paranoia. You have he's contrasted by his wife who needs to see what's going on and doesn't see what Daniel sees. And then once they all start, the daughter included, once they all start to experience uh, events in the house, then that's where the structure, even in, in the novel, really starts to make you, well, it was my intention to make the reader question their reality. I wanted them to be in, so invested in these characters, first and foremost. And I had to establish scares early on, and I had to build character early on, or else people aren't going to make it past chapter two. So once I fully uh, described and defined and brought these characters to life as best I could, then I would introduce them to the supernatural elements because when I'm reading or watching something and I'm so invested in a character and something, and then they're put in peril, I'm that much more on the edge of my seat. And there's a reason why, why Stephen King can write these doorstop books and spend the first 300 pages just building a world, because by the time you get to page 301 and something, a demon pops out, you're like, oh my gosh, no, not to these people I love. I, I don't want anything to happen to them. Please don't. And you have to keep reading. So that's that was my blueprint with, with those two characters. But yeah, the contrast between her being a woman of science and him being also a, a man of, of the social sciences, but his passion for the inner workings of the mind and specifically mental illness is, is what is ultimately his doorway into, into possibly believing that there could be something supernatural going on. I think that one of the big differences between good horror and bad horror is that good horror has characters where you actually care what happens to them. You don't just like, oh, well, you know, cannon fodder, who cares? They're dead. Move on. But did it take you a while to get your characters to the point where you felt they were ready for the actual writing process? Yeah. So I'll, I'll typically not so much have a physical idea of what they look like, but I'll, I might start off with a profession or I might start off with uh, just you know, a random quirk or a dark past or something like that. But what really brings them to life is when I get two characters in a room talking. If I can facilitate that, they sort of draw themselves. You know, Nick's, Nick's backs out of the conversation at a certain point, and I'm just on autopilot. And the, the further I get into the novel, obviously, the more I know these characters and 
you know, it does, hopefully it doesn't sound like me trying to write like a female science teacher or me trying to write like a psychologist. It sounds like a legitimate person. So yeah, I try to let that evolve naturally because on my first book, I went into that one with such fully formed characters because it was such a very take the time to, you know, create a character outline before getting to work. Okay. This is your second book, your first one, Anathema, uh, released in 2020. Was writing The Exorcist House any easier because you've had the previous experience putting out a novel? Yes. You're not the first person to, to call it Anathema, by the way. Oops, what is it's it called? Anathema. Ah, dang it. All right. Anathema, got so it. So I've been kicking myself ever since giving it that title because nobody can pronounce it no one knows what it means it's just a weird odd word and when you go to recommend this book to your friend you're like oh i read this book by nick roberts it was called something but i don't remember some big word so yeah um but (laughs) with uh with anathema more than anything on the first book i learned discipline i had uh i had graduated college with a bachelor's in English and quickly realized that there aren't too many jobs out there that you can just walk into with an English degree and land. So I decided to get my master's in teaching and I'm nearing the end of getting my doctorate in leadership studies. But it was it was somewhere in that process. I said, you know what? I got into English because I like creative writing. I've been doing it my whole life, more half-heartedly, never fully committed to it. So I'm a te- I was working as a, uh, a teacher on permit, meaning I didn't even have my, my full license yet. And I finished that first year of school and summer rolled around. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm still getting paid, sitting at home, kind of twiddling my thumbs a little bit. I'm going to write my novel. You know, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I just, I randomly Googled how long should a horror novel be? <laughs> because I didn't want to go by Stephen King standards and say, hey, you know, he had, he had to earn the right to put out a 1400 page book. So the uh, the answer I got was between 80 and 90,000 words. So I said, okay, I'm off for approximately three months. Let's say i sit down every day and break, uh, bust out a thousand words. That'll give me roughly 90,000 words by the end of the summer. And that's what I did. And it was at times, um, I was elated. I couldn't believe what I just put to paper. Other times I felt like I wrote myself into plot holes that I had no way out of. And I would go into deep depression and make everyone else in my house miserable until I found my way out of that out of that problem. It's just, it's a terrible feeling to get you know 200 pages into a book and realize I just wasted two months of my life doing this. And that's where I think a lot of people may talk themselves out of it and forget about the initial passion of the project that got that got you to sit down and start. So. Yeah, that discipline is really what I got from from writing Anathema. I, I, I stuck to my plan, wrote that book, and thought that was going to be the hard part. But uh, yeah, getting it published 
that was that was the trickier part. <laughs> yeah, it always is. It definitely is. Um, and we're definitely going to talk about that in a bit. But I want to ask about talking yourself back into writing. How do you sort of get yourself a- away from those feelings of oh, I've wasted you know X amount of days. This is going nowhere. What am I thinking? I update my friends and family, and now uh, I've developed a few readers that follow me on social media. I update them with progress. So when I started Anathema, my first book, I literally made a post. Hey, I'm I'm beginning a novel today, and then I'd say, just reach twenty thousand words today, you know, and keep them keep them following along with me. So to stop. It was a 100% pure ego thing that was like, I have told all these people that I'm going to write this thing. If I stop now, I'm just going to look like a big loser. And, you know, whether it's good or not, I'm going for broke and I'm, I'm, I'm finishing this thing. So, yeah, I told on myself early on and it's an ego thing. So that's, that's, that's my answer. I let others hold me accountable, basically. Yeah. But I think that's a really good approach to uh, take because if you tell the whole world you're doing something, it gives you that extra incentive to say, well, I told them I'm doing it. I guess I better go ahead and do it. And also, I, I would get comments from friends I grew up with, from people I hadn't talked to in years, say, hey, I remember when you used to write things. I'll buy this thing when it comes out. And I had you know a bunch of little cheerleaders along the way that would keep me going. So that was nice. Cool, cool. Now, did you uh, work with an editor or a team of like uh, beta readers? I did with uh, I have some beta readers with this with the first book with Anathema. It was published through J. Ellington Ashton Press, a very small publishing house, and they had one editor. He uh, he went over it, didn't catch everything, and you know. It, but I'm, you know, I'm grateful. They gave me the opportunity. They put my, my work out there. They did their best. And, you know, that, that was my limited experience with, with working with an editor and a publisher. Okay. It's been 100% completely different with Crystal Lake. Yeah. Um, I was really curious as to how uh, you met the team there. The next summer after writing Anathema, I had, of course, my next free summer. And I said, all right, time for novel two. And I sat down, cranked out The Exorcist's House, which originally was not called The Exorcist's House. It went through several different names, all of which were making the same mistake as my first book. These pretentious long words that you had to look up to understand. So I was like, I kept bad, like pandemonium was the running one for a long time. But then I looked and saw that, you know, there's a, hundreds of books called pandemonium plus we just went through a pandemic and i don't want that subconsciously affecting someone like hey i don't want to read about a pandemic but um the exorcist house just i was like okay i'm writing about an exorcist house um wait i'm gonna stop right there exorcist house you know that could catch people's eye people searching for the exorcist might come across my book you know let's do it that way but yeah so i drafted that first that first manuscript of it. And I just went online and, and we're looking for um, publishing houses uh, that were accepting unsolicited manuscripts. I sent it out to several agents and 
um, got several rejection letters. I got some that said, hey, we love this part, this part, improve on this, send us more of your work. And that was encouraging. But uh, uh, Crystal Lake got back to me and they said, we love this. The problem is we have, we're so backed up right now that this won't come out until midway into 2022. And it was, you know, over a year and a half. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, we were in the middle of a pandemic and I said, this might be a, uh, a bit of a godsend because if I try to get this thing put out in the next six months and we're still on lockdown and wearing masks and quarantine, there's not going to be any book signings. There's not going to be any promotion. It's all going to have to be online. And, you know, I said, okay, let's roll with the 2022 release date because Anathema was released March, 2020. So as it made its debut with COVID. So I had so many engagements lined up. I was going to speak at the West Virginia Book Fair and you know, it all got canceled, but it is it's still sold relatively well just by word of mouth and, and social media and um, ended up the next year getting nominated for debut novel of the year uh, the horror authors guild. And I was blown away by that. And then it ended up winning that award. So, you know, it's, it, it's pretty amazing when I sit back and think about it, you know, that at that point where I was getting ready to write that first novel, not, not knowing if anyone would care, not knowing if it would be any good to having it get picked up to having it win an award and then to have an even bigger publishing house pick up my next work, it's you know, it's this gradual climb. And, you know, I love writing, so it doesn't feel like work. And as long as I'm writing, I, I have all the faith in the world that it's onward and upward. Exactly. And you get to introduce yourself as Nick Roberts, award-winning writer. Yeah, I mean, there's always. I mean, that's like just perfect, like right there. It's like, yeah, you know, Nick Roberts, award-winning writer, no big deal. Um, yeah, business so, cards, man. Story, business cards. Jay, right? Jay Ellington Ashton, the publisher of Anathema, they actually had to had to close down. They didn't really survive COVID, so the rights reverted back to me. So unfortunately, that meant that the uh, Anathema was no longer going to be in print, and. I have about 300 copies of the first edition. So since, since I had the rights, I went ahead and reformatted it, fixed all the errors, tweaked the cover a little bit, and added that winner of the 2020 Horror Authors Guild Award on the novel, and I republished it as a second edition. So that second edition is out there. It's on Amazon. It's available now. Um, yeah, so I definitely took advantage of the... Uh, award-winning author you gotta i mean try to make it make make it sound as big as i can exactly exactly does winning an award like that make you approach things like the exorcist house differently knowing that there is this much like talk about you as a writer not at all because i suffer from imposter syndrome oh okay then (laughs) (laughs) in every in every aspect of my life even in teaching I'll be standing there mid-lecture and just out of nowhere, I'll be like, what am I doing standing here influencing these young minds of America? 
I shouldn't be here. I should be the one being taught. And then I'll, you know, snap out of it, get, get back to it. And even more so with my publishing and uh, <laughs> yeah. So winning that award was, was nice. It, uh, it, it was, like I said, another little ego boost, but it didn't, it didn't make it. I didn't feel like I had to work any less hard on the next one. I feel like I had to work harder actually. Yeah. I, David Letterman has a quote that I related to, or he says, <laughs> he says, I, I wouldn't go to a, I wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that mindset is, is sort of, uh, is sort of, you know, built into the imposter syndrome that I have, but that's okay. Keeps me grounded. Exactly. And I think that's really, really key because I think it, like there's nothing worse than someone who believes their own hype to think, yes, <laughs> I am that awesome. I really am like a pillar of this industry. That's like, I think the biggest mistake you can make. Um, but I want to pivot a bit and talk about book covers because of course a, bo- a good book cover can sell or not sell a book on its own. Your cover is really, really scary as hell. Thank Where you. did the idea come from for this one though? So Joe, my publisher, he, he emailed, emailed me and asked me, you know, what are your thoughts on the cover? What elements from the from the novel do you want incorporated? And of course, I sent back a laundry list of themes and and symbols and imagery from the text. And he said, okay, well, let's let's simplify that a little bit and you know, bear down on a few key things that you want. And I'll uh, tell me, and then based on that, I'll hook you up with who I think is an appropriate artist. So I said, okay, it takes place in the heart of Appalachia. So I want those, I want it, I want you to see the land. I want you to feel like it's a farm. It's called the exorcist house. I naturally would like a, a house at the front and center, but I also want there to be something deeply unsettling about it but not overtly scary if you look at the cover of anathema i I still love it but it's completely different it's this out of focus uh girl with dark hair covering her face and she's sort of reaching out of the cover at the reader and it's creepy because it's blurry and it leaves a lot to the imagination but it's uh you know it it's 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 not subtle and i was aiming for classy subtle creepy and he said okay i'll look around and he got back with uh he he found a guy and connected me with him and i I gave him my ideas and he he a few weeks later sent me back this uh, sketch of this farmhouse. He said, you know, I'm thinking of starting with this. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, Uh, yes. And then the next draft I got was the final draft. And he said, he said, do you want anything else added to it? I said, no, this captures the tone. It's creepy. It, uh, if I were walking down the horror aisle and I saw that and I saw that title, it would catch my eye. I would at least pick it up and check it out. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I agree 100% on covers. All right. Well, Nick, of course, great talking to you. And again, folks, this is out May 6th through Crystal Lake yeah. Publishing. 
You go to nickrobertsauthor.com for more information. Get your copy. Follow his socials. The, the engagement is a huge help. Leave a review. Leave a star review. Leave a, like a written review. Whatever you want to say. But say something because this helps all these authors get up there and seen by the rest of the world. And Nick, what's next for you? Uh, do you have book signings coming up? Do you have another book in the works? Planning on arranging some book signings. I've, uh, I'm actually nearing the end of my dissertation. So that's taking up all of my time in writing. Once that's finished, and I, I, I pray I finish it in the next couple of months, I'm going to try to crank out book number three before the start of the next school year. It's going to be tr- tricky, but I'll always have new short stories coming out. I, I crank those out on weekends. I'll spend a few weekends working on my shorts, get those published. So I'm always scratching that creative itch. So if my novel doesn't come to fruition, you'll still be bombarded with my short stories that keep getting picked up. <laughs> I like that. I like that. All right, Nick. Well, great talking to you, man. Looking forward to the book. And uh, we'll be talking uh, real soon. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. Hey, this is singer-songwriter and mental health advocate Stephanie Mathias. Be sure to check out my single Hero Side, available on all platforms now, and listen to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best indie artists. Okay, everyone, that brings this episode to a close. Big thanks to Nick for joining me, and definitely check out the new book, available May 6th through Crystal Lake Publishing. You can follow this show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout, and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check out the show wherever you find podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. As always, keep those ears open.